WHMP. Good afternoon, and uh, thank you for joining us on this on this rainy afternoon. Hello, Dan. What's happening, Buzz? Well, what's Hi. happening is the aftermath of Ian. Ooh. Um, the number of deaths, the number of people who are missing, the number of people who are homeless, the property damage. We're just sort of getting a better idea. Uh, of course, our information all comes filtered through the media, but it looks right. like uh, as of now we know of 103 um, people who have died and many more are missing. And um, the rescue effort is, uh, no matter how much it increases, it's getting increasingly difficult, uh, even though there are more people involved in it. It is a perfect time to have a true expert, a scientist. And I also read that that area has been getting a lot of people moving into that area of like Fort Myers. And so it's been a very popular destination in the last couple of years. I know. I read about these vacationers. It's yeah. terrible stories of a, a woman, a mother of four who mm -hmm. went there with her sister and, and she was 40 years old and died. Wow. On her vacation. Oh, I, I saw this exact same story. Oh, yeah. it's a horrible story. Yeah. But uh, I am so grateful that we uh, have Christina Dahl, the climate scientist at uh, one of my favorite organizations, the Union of Concerned Scientists with us. Christina Dahl, the principal climate scientist uh, for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union, uh, with us. Hello, Christina. Hi, it's great to be with you this afternoon. It's great to have you with us. And I guess this is the second time we've, we've uh, been privileged enough to have your uh, expert uh, uh, opinion to rely on um, because so many of us have our suspicions, but of course we don't know what we're talking about. Uh, what I wanted to lead with, Christina, is I, when I was just uh, doing a little bit of prep for our conversation, um, I saw that between 2020 and 2021, there were eight hurricanes that um, were strong enough to make a certain index. I, I don't know how to pronounce it, the Saffir-Simpson wind scale. And they were the article I was looking at compared um, it to between 2010, 2000 and 2010, there were 19 hurricanes of a certain intensity. In just one year, there were eight hurricanes um, of the same intensity or greater. That's half the number in one year as there was in one decade. Um, so how do you attribute, what do you, to what do you attribute that uh, increase in frequency? Sure. So one of the big challenges with understanding trends in hurricanes over time is that there's a lot of variability from year to year. So you might have one year where you only see a couple, and the next year you see a dozen. So that's, that makes detecting the trends very challenging because the data is very noisy. But what we can say is that the frequency of hurricanes, how often they are happening um, in the Atlantic, is it's not conclusive how that's changing over time. What has been much more conclusive is um, a finding that suggests that the intensity of hurricanes in the Atlantic is increasing over time. In other words, more and more hurricanes or a greater proportion of hurricanes are reaching the strongest categories on that Saffir-Simpson wind scale that you mentioned. Those are the categories we hear about, uh, one through five. So essentially we see more storms 
reaching categories three, four, and five, which are considered to be a major hurricane um, and would include uh, storms like Hurricane Ian. And that change over time towards hurricanes getting more intense is linked to climate change um, because as we warm the planet, and particularly as we warm the ocean, all of that extra heat serves as fuel to hurricanes and allows them to become stronger than, than they otherwise would be. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag in terms of frequency, not so much of a climate signal, but in terms of intensity, there's increasing evidence that yes, climate change is making our hurricanes more intense. Yeah, when I was looking at the wind, I guess the wind speed at the point of windfall, and I was looking, I guess there were 300 hurricanes between the late 19th century and now um, that they would consider serious wind speed. It used to be 140 miles an hour, 150 miles an hour. There was one, Andrew, in 1992 that hit in, it made landfall in Elliott Key, Florida. Now, of course, this is not my memory. This is my reading. Um, that hit at 165 miles an hour. But so many of the ones that were listed, I'm looking at the wind speeds of 140, 148, 130, 130. And now I'm looking at 2021, 2020, Laura hit in Cameron, Louisiana, which is southwest Louisiana, 150 miles an hour. Ida in 2021, in Port Fortran, Louisiana, southwest Louisiana, at 150 miles an hour. Ian, right now, southwest Florida, 150 miles an hour. Um, that seems to confirm what you're saying. So how do, how do you transfer the knowledge that you're acquiring or the consequences of climate to policymakers? Well, that's the million-dollar question, really. I mean, if we'd figured that out a couple decades ago, we probably wouldn't be in the position we're in today where our greenhouse gas or heat-trapping emissions are continuing to rise at a global scale. And so, um, yeah, I mean, every storm that's happened for the past 15, 20 years, climate scientists have said, you know, this should be a wake-up call <laughs> that we need to be cutting our emissions, increasing our preparedness to extreme weather. Um, and yet, instead of waking up as a nation uh, and in terms of our policymakers, we essentially keep hitting the snooze button and saying, okay, we're going to deal with it later. We'll deal with it later. Um, I do think that extreme weather in the last few years has really started to shift public understanding of climate change and you know, with a greater number of policymakers seeing their constituents affected by extreme weather. Um, I think they're getting more pressure to um, take action on climate change so you know, it's not just the hurricanes, but um, increasingly intense heat waves, uh, the wildfires out here in the in the West in California where I live, um, the punishing drought that we've been experiencing out here in the West as well. All of those things have a connection to climate change, and as public understanding of those links between extreme weather and climate change gets stronger. Um, you know, hopefully there's more pressure put on our policymakers to actually take some action. Uh, do you think it's just a consequence, uh, the actual phenomenon itself? Is there anything that you or the Union of Concerned Scientists can do to propose policies that would make it 
easier to design or communicate um, your scientific analyses to make the policy changes more likely to occur? Yeah, that's something that we do a lot of at the Union of Concerned Scientists. So uh, we are an advocacy organization, and what we're advocating for essentially is the use of rigorous science, whether it's produced by us as scientists or other scientists at other organizations, the use of that science in public policy making. So anytime we produce an analysis of, um, for example, if we were to analyze the frequency of very strong hurricanes over time, we couple that analysis with a set of policy recommendations. So what do we need to do now that we have the scientific information, what are we going to do about it? Um, and then, uh, this isn't necessarily my role as a scientist, but my colleagues at the Union of Concerned Scientists who are um, policy analysts or uh, interface with legislative staff will take the results of our work um, to elected officials on Capitol Hill and um, talk to their staff, talk to them directly about uh, what we're finding and what we'd recommend. Um, but it also works in the opposite direction too. So sometimes uh, given that we have you know, long-standing relationships with um, the offices of, excuse me, the offices of elected officials in Washington, sometimes they will come to us and say, we're thinking about developing a bill on climate resilience or climate um, you know, related hazards in some way. And they'll ask for input on that. And that's a chance for us to say, here's what we know from the science, and here's what we'd recommend that you put in that bill based on that. So it's a really unique organization in that we're really doing science and putting science at the forefront of public policy. I, I know it, it, the, the union... You're a member of an extraordinary organization, and, and um, when so... Um, much hooey is being thrown at science these days, and so many of us who are not scientists implore our policymakers to please recognize that there's a difference between facts and beliefs, and that uh, science is based on facts. It's constantly refining, testing um, facts. The scientific method is called the scientific method for a reason. These are the times when it drives me crazy to see climate deniers, um, well, we don't have to look very far. Right now, the governor of Florida, who has long uh, refused to endorse um, the Green New Deal and other policies aimed at uh, uh, slowing down climate change and um, uh, uh, dampening the harsh effects of climate change, begging for money because, his, because of the tens of billions of dollars they anticipate of damage that was just done, I know you folks have to work with those deniers. I don't think they're the ones that are open to listening to you, but it, it must be so frustrating for you trying to figure out how to get through to those people who throw snowballs and claim, see, there is no global warming because we had snow yesterday. How do you do that? How do you put up yeah. with that? <laughs> it is incredibly frustrating. I mean, I started working on climate issues back in the mid-90s as a college student. And there was a lot less information about climate change back then. And 
we were still really in the thick of um, these fossil fuel company-based um, narratives that were they were pumping out there that this that climate change wasn't something to worry about, that there wasn't a connection to fossil fuels. And so that was a much bigger part of public perception at that time. But the fact that I get the same questions now as I did almost 30 years ago is really, um, it's really maddening. And yet, in some ways, it's understandable, right? We, we have a very entrenched system of how we get our energy, how we move ourselves from place to place in our cars and planes. Um, and, you know, frankly, we've been up against very deep-pocketed um, fossil fuel proponents. So, so those narratives do persist. Um, and I think it's one thing when, um, you know, your average person on the street is denying the facts of climate change, you know, that that we've seen a huge groundswell against in the last few uh, years. And so we know that public perception is really changing. Um, but it's another thing when there are people in a position of power, elected officials who are blatantly denying the facts and often acting against their constituents' best interests. Um, so that is really frustrating. Um, I do think right now in Washington, um, you know, we we just saw the passage of the big infrastructure bill, which has um, a fair amount of funding in it for climate resilience related um, projects, and and the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is huge, um, and will, you know, it's the single biggest piece of legislation that will cut emissions that we've ever passed. So there are some really encouraging signs, and we're not nearly where we need to be, um, but uh, we've gotten a couple big chunks passed this year, and that's really exciting. That's a great place to take a break. We are talking with Christina Dahl. We're going to take a break because there are some really big chunks that are encouraging. <laughs> it's something for me to stew on for a few minutes until we come back with the principal climate scientist for the Climate and Energy Program the Union of Concerned Scientists, Christina Dahl. We'll be back with Christina right after he's with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. I'm Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Have we got some exciting news for you. And I'm Mortgage Originator Kimberly Gates. We're extending our offer to save up to $1,000 on your mortgage closing costs. There's still time to get a $750 closing credit plus another $250 when we pre-qualify you. Check out our new website and start your application now at bestlocalbank.com or come see us in person. As local lenders, we're here for you 
every step of the way. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Missy Tatro. Or me, Kimberly Gates, and save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. Close by November 30th, be a new first mortgage customer, or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. It's October 2022, and that means it's Kringle Candle's 12th anniversary. Stop by Kringle Candle on South Street in Bernardston for their 12th anniversary sales event this Friday through Monday. Kringle Candle is open from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. All large and medium candle jars, Halloween candles, and fall decor items are on sale. Shop the new Kringle Holiday Fragrances just released. Visit the Gourmet Shop and enjoy much more. For more information, go to KringleCandle.com. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community. Be careful in your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. Hi guys. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Winesick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Winesick Nursery. Route 9 in Hadley and online at winesicknursery.com. For complete contest rules for WHMP, please visit WHMP's website at whmp.com and click on the Contest and Rules tab. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are with climate scientist Christina Dahl and... Uh, Christina, so um, what I've read, Ian, um, Hurricane Ian, uh, had the fifth highest wind speeds ever recorded. Um, and I'm trying to understand how, we, we know some of the things that the press t- tells us, which is about the uh, more than 12-foot storm surges and the almost 22 inches of rain that it deposited. And But I still don't understand how... And why a hurricane of that intensity develops? How does it actually happen? Yeah, so I think it's important to note first that hurricanes are a natural part of Earth's climate. It's one of the ways that our climate system moves energy around from place to place on the globe. Um, I, I sort of think of it like, you know, the Earth letting off some steam. Um, but what happens when you have a hurricane developing um, is that when you have a mass of air that's moving over very warm ocean water, you start to get um, air rising from the surface of the ocean up into the atmosphere. And because of the spin of the Earth, that, that air then begins to spin, forming that kind of classic spiral shape that we see on satellite images of hurricanes, for example. Um, it's also, while, it's, while that uh, storm is forming, it's picking up moisture from the ocean, from the surrounding air. Um, and it is, uh, it, 
essentially developing stronger and stronger winds. Now, if that hurricane were to pass over a patch of ocean where the temperature was really low, it would break up, right? We need a hot, or I should say a very warm ocean for a hurricane to form and sustain itself. Um, and that is something that was the case as Hurricane, as, um, hurricane Ian was developing. Um, we have abnormally warm ocean waters because of climate change, and so it's passing over warm, warm, warm waters, and it's not reaching any cool waters that kind of um, take any energy, uh, sap energy from the storm. We also know that wind shear is important. Now, wind shear is the change in the speed of the wind from the surface of the Earth up into the atmosphere. So if you have a big change in wind speeds or wind shear as you go up in the atmosphere, that can cause a hurricane to break apart as well. Um, they need very low wind shear in order to be sustained. So what we see in the case of Ian and other storms is the passing over warm water, the wind shear is very low, and so they're able to intensify. Um, and storms like Ian, um, like many storms, Hurricane Laura, and Ida, uh, Michael, just within the past few years, have also undergone, undergone what's called rapid intensification as they have approached the shore. And what that is, is a major change in the um, intensity of the storm in a very short period of time. So, for example, going from a Category 2 to a Category 4 hurricane just overnight. Um, and that is also something that is a hallmark of climate change. We're seeing a greater number of storms undergo that rapid intensification. Um, then finally, as they approach the, the shore, they bring along with them this storm surge that's essentially um, you know, a pushing of water up against the coast. Um, and that's really, in many of these storms, what causes the most damage and is the most um, uh, the biggest threat to our lives, um, more so than the wind often. It's the storm surge. Thank you for that explanation. That was very helpful to me, Christina Dahl. So when, uh, before we take a break, um, I, I, I'd like to know how long has science understood the danger of climate change and the relationship between warming of waters and the frequency and intensity of these storms. Is this a new phenomenon, a new understanding? Yeah, so we have known about the possibility that adding carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, that that could potentially cause warming for well over 100 years. Um, some of the earliest evidence came from just scientists experimenting in the lab and trying to understand the connection between carbon dioxide and temperature of air. And really interestingly, some of those very early experiments from just around the turn of the 20th century, um, if we look at the relationships between CO2 and temperature that they developed and apply them now to the amount of CO2 we have in our atmosphere 100 plus years later, we see just about the exact amount of temperature change that we have experienced based on these 100-year-old models of those relationships. So, so that's been very clear for a long time. The uh, relationship between a warming planet and hurricanes has been less clear, and some of that relates to the fact that hurricanes vary so much from year to year in number and in strength. 
Um, but I would say, you know, at least the last 20, 25 years, scientists have been um, you know, postulating that warmer planet would lead to more intense hurricanes. And it's just taken a while for the, you know, the data and the methodologies to become advanced enough that we can really start to detect those kinds of trends. Well, the data is now advanced enough and the methodologies as well so that we know we could predict this. Policymakers, you know, it's, uh, I had a professor once who told me it's really easy to listen to people who know what you know, but it's, uh, the most important thing is to learn how to listen to people who know what you don't know. Uh, it is people like you, a climate scientist, Christina Dahl, who uh, we all should be listening to in making policies to prevent the Ians that keep recurring at greater frequency and greater intensity from destroying lives and properties the way that they do. I can't thank you and the Union of Concerned Scientists enough, folks. Every donation you make to the Union of Concerned Scientists results in people like Christina Dahl helping to save our planet and our society. So please be generous and uh, take a look at their website and read, read, read so that we can understand more. Christina Dahl, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Stay healthy out there. Everybody. You take care. <laughs> okay. We are going to be back. Uh, I'm looking very much forward to the conversation we're about to have with Bob Weiner um, about a presentation he's going to be giving at the University of Massachusetts on Thursday at 2.30 to discuss the history and the future of our democracy in the United States. We'll be right back with Bob Weiner right after this. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Holyoke City Councilor Wilmer Polomoto was back at last night's city council meeting for the first time since a judge's ruling that he cannot be kicked off the council unless convicted of a crime. The Ward 2 city councilor faces criminal charges in Rhode Island, including for child pornography. Polomoto spoke with 22 News. I have no ill feelings towards anybody in the city. I'm definitely willing to work with anybody. And as far as my constituents, when I have my town hall, we can talk about whatever concerns they have. Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia says he has faith in the legal system and his focus is on day-to-day -day management and enforcement of the city charter. A Ludlow man is facing multiple charges after allegedly threatening to kill and assault an officer on Sunday night with a large dog. Officers were called to a complaint from a woman asking for help with an out-of-control man at a home on Miller Street. The man, identified as 25-year-old Bradley Caverly, immediately began to confront officers. Officers used tasers on Caverly and his dog, and one officer was bit by the dog. Caverly is being held without bail until a dangerousness hearing tomorrow in Palmer District Court. Amherst Town Council is asking the state to allocate more money to the Jones Library construction project. Councilors sent a letter asking for ARPA funds to help cover some of the increases. The letter comes as concerns arise over whether the $13.87 million grant awarded by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners will be sufficient for what had been projected as a $36.3 million expansion and renovation, but recent estimates have shown could be $10 million or more higher. 
Mostly cloudy this afternoon, still the chance for a scattered shower, but there also could be a few breaks of blue, especially in Franklin County, a high of 60 to 64. Partial clearing for all of us tonight, patchy fog, low of 42 to 48. Mostly sunny on Thursday, a high of 70 to 74. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New, New Bedford or Fall River. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Fall is here, and I have two beers to help you celebrate the season. Hi, I'm Caleb Hiliadis, head brewer of Amherst Brewing. Our pumpkin ale is brewed with a delicious blend of spices, sugar, and real pumpkins. Blumeister Oktoberfest is our traditional German lager with a full and sweet body. Both beers are available at all Hangar Pub and Grill locations on draft and in 16-ounce cans in Amherst. Ask your server for a cinnamon sugar rim on your pint of pumpkin ale. Pumpkin ale cans and draft are also available across the entire state of Massachusetts. Stop in soon for a pint with us and a four pack to go. At American National, what's important to you is important to us. Just like every horse is unique, so is our equine coverage. American National's equine owner's insurance is designed to address the inherent risks involved with owning horses. Flexible enough to provide property and liability coverage for operations of various sizes, yet can be tailored for your specific needs. We're right by your side. For more information, just visit AmericanNational.com. American National Property and Casualty Company and Affiliates, Springfield, Missouri. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And I am very excited about this segment of our show. Thank you for joining us. We have a treat for you. We have um, Robert Weiner, the former congressional and White House staffer, a guy who knows democracy inside and out, and who is going to be speaking uh, at Herder Hall at the University of Massachusetts on Thursday, uh, the 6th, tomorrow, at 2.30, to discuss the history and the future of democracy in the United States. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Buzz, to be back on my old stomping ground. I, I just love coming back here periodically, and, and I, I really miss the place. So thank you for having me on. And yes, the talk tomorrow, is democracy dying and what can be done about it? Uh, invited by Brian Ogilvie and Dan Gordon of the History Department uh, to give a talk. It's open to the public. It's free. And we want questions and answers. It's going to be interactive. And we'll take some ideas because now since I worked in the White House in Congress, I run the Young Writers Group at the National Press Club. We won the National Press Club President's Award for a thousand op-eds and top papers. And so I'm collecting ideas all the time. And uh, we, we want to get that kind of reaction and interface with the UMass and, and Amherst and Northampton community. It's really great. Well, I think that they're, uh, it's great that you're open to their ideas, but I know that they're dying to listen to your ideas. And, and I know that I am. You, uh, it, it's such a timely topic. Um, we're all worried, is democracy going to survive the assault that it suffered? You know, some say uh, because of Trump, but I think beginning with Reagan that there has been uh, assault after assault on our democratic systems. But um, what are you going to be saying tomorrow? Well, and, and, and Watergate, you had Nixon telling the FBI to cover up the cover-up. I mean, that's what did him in, was, was his assault on law enforcement. 
uh, and then Ken Starr during Clinton. Now, you were I was, subpoenaed by I, Ken Starr. That is correct. And I went out on the courthouse steps. Uh, my wife and I, who's here with us in the studio, Pat. Hi, Pat. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> because uh, she was on a treadmill and saw her friends uh, who... Uh, Criticized uh, Star for uh, for uh, wire for having Linda Tripp wiretap uh, Lewinsky and in a state that it's two party consent and it was one party. So we said we found out about that. These were our friends, and we said this is Big Brother at its worst. Uh, we we talked about the fact that uh, you have the right. Pat went out on, uh, and and was on uh, in the. All over. We both were all over TV saying this is Big Brother at its worst. Me and Pat said this isn't uh, Nazi Germany in America. You have the right to make phone calls to whoever you want without fear of reprisal. And Starr lost on that deal. I was credited in the New York Times as being the first witness to go out and talk about his overreach. Well, you talk about overreach now and you got Trump. I mean, the, the track is clear. And it's a dangerous track. This is a guy who Politico just reported yesterday uh, actually packed 25 boxes himself to take out of the national, uh, take out of the White House that belonged to the American people in the National Archives. And so uh, this is a, a dangerous situation. If you know, all you have to do with this guy, all you have to do, Buzz, is you have to go into the art of the deal, his own stuff. He writes about it. And in 1985, he went to Russia to meet with, meet with Dobrynin's daughter, the foreign minister's daughter. And Trump was seen by the Russians as a patsy, as a, as a, as a mark, because he was going to be an American businessman who was, who was, who was going to be successful. They never dreamt they'd have an American president out of it. And then they took him over. His dream, of course, was to have Trump Tower uh, in Moscow. He never got it. But what he got was triple payments for his real estate and his condos in Florida and in New York and in Trump Towers. And the Russians basically paid for him. You remember Manafort didn't make any money from Trump. He got his payment from Russians and through what Russia was doing with Ukraine. That's where his campaign manager got his money. And then he was told by Putin to bring Manafort in. He brought Manafort in as his campaign manager. And he also... I'm being told there's a time hard. No, there's no time. Actually, I wanted yeah, to interrupt well, because no, I, no, I, no. I was going to like. Well, I think Dan was looking I was, like. I was going to so interrupt exciting. and try to and try to push the the other button, the other side, just to say, just to see where where you would go with this. Well, I, I was, go ahead, but, but you were, what were you saying about Manafort before? Just did he? Well, the the fa the fact is that that um, um, Mueller even said two years ago. This wasn't new news. That he, it's not that he said Trump is innocent, it's that he was playing to the internal memo of justice not to prosecute a current president. That's right. That's the only reason he didn't go after him. But if you look at those TikToks in the Mueller report, everything there is how Trump was, was uh, in the hold. And even, uh, even uh, McCarthy, the, the leader of the Republicans, said privately in the Republican caucus, he's on Putin's payroll. So, you know, what have you got here? Uh, and, and you've laid out very well what we've got here. So let me ask you a question. I know, Dan, we're both anxious to ask you questions. Uh, here's my question. There's everything you just said just resonates with me, and uh, you, you, you understand it at a deeper level than most of us do. My question is, how did how many, so many people get sold by Trump to crap? I mean, how that do so many people question. buy it? I just don't understand why they don't see what you and I see when yeah. they look at a Donald Trump or a Paul Manafort. Well, luckily, it's about 30% of the country. And, and you know that during his presidency, the Republicans went from 33 to 28% of the country. The reason was Trump lost a lot of people. And thank God, you know. I, 
Chris Rock makes a joke, and Pat and I saw, you know, uh, he joked about everybody, Hillary and Biden and the royals, and the, but uh, about Biden, he said, you know, the Democrats couldn't find anybody, and suddenly Biden, who'd been dead for 16 years, got out of his box and walked forward and said, I'll run. And he was the perfect healer. Gerald Ford was the perfect healer. Biden is the perfect healer against Trump. And he is bipartisan, and that is his guts and his blood. And we are friends, by the way. Um, when uh, Biden first ran for Senate, and I was the youth vote director at the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate. Wow. Um, I had a forum for Biden in Delaware. and I At went, the Watergate office that was broken into? Yes, I worked there during that break-in. So, I mean, I, I, I talk about the beginning of this whole thing, you know. Yeah. And we knew, all of us who were on the staff knew that, that Nixon was guilty because... The, the truth spreads up to the principal, even if he doesn't say it did. So right. he knew. But uh, but so Biden, we had a youth forum for him in Delaware. He won by th 3,000 votes, 3,000 votes, the closest Senate race that year. And uh, he invited me over to his house to meet with his family. And we've stayed friends ever since. Hell great. So uh, and the guy has really been a, just a decent Although he makes mistakes, the little plagiarism that he did. I mean, he took somebody else's speech and didn't bother to say. It's always important to say where you get something That's from. That's right. So. That's right. I do that all the time on the air. I try to so, remember where yeah. I got it. So, Bob, I just wanted to get your take on this. So let's let's say I, I agree with most of everything you said, but how is it that an individual, a president, can get away with it? I mean, uh, you couldn't prosecute the president, apparently, even though there were, what, 10 instances of obstruction of justice that they documented. And I want you specifically to answer this. In, in the eras that we've seen previously, you mentioned Nixon a couple times. Yeah. The Republicans were willing to walk into the White House and say, it's over for you. We'll side with the Democrats and we'll vote to get you out. What has changed? Is it trust? Is it nobody believes in the institutions? Is it everybody gets to believe whatever they want? Democrats had the votes. I was part of that. I was Ed Koch's legislative assistant and wrote his, his what his floor speech was going to be on impeaching Nixon. Never got there because Nixon resigned under the pressure of knowing that the, the votes were gone. And uh, that, that's really the difference. Mm. So, but there have to be heroes here. There have to be. There Within are the Republican Party? In the Republican Party, there have to be some heroes, and obviously it can't be Cheney. It would have to be uh, both McConnell and uh, McCarthy walking in together into uh, into Trump and saying, "You can't do this; it's over." That's, yeah. That's the only well, way we've seen McCarthy, you know, talk privately against Trump after right. January six immediately, and then a couple days later, apparently, from what I've been able to gather, the Republicans were afraid he was going to create his own party, take all the energy out, yeah. fracture the conservative movement, and basically end them for multiple generations. So then they decided to say, hey, we'll send McCarthy over About to Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, we'll send him to Mar-a-Lago, like they've done before. Ted Cruz, all of the members, they're able to always, you know, succumb to, okay, Trump wins. Um, Here's the answer to your yeah. question, though. It's a very concrete answer. Um, if Trump gets 30% and, and the rest of the vote is split up and there's a bunch of people, which is what happened— that's how he controls the primaries. Mm. That's the answer. Mm. He has the he is the dominating force in the Republican Party because mm. if if it's split around him by everybody else, mm. he still gets the plurality, not right. the majority, yes. and that's what gave him the power to win last time. And I think the elites of the Republican Party have realized this, and maybe that's why they only want to send DeSantis against them and be like one on one. And I don't know if that's any better, but that's what I think they're planning on doing. It's possible. Uh, buzz. Uh, we have to take a break. When we come back, we're, we're here with Bob Weiner. I'm so excited to have you here, Bob. And uh, what I want to talk about is 
the future of American democracy. Yeah. We're, it's so fractious right now and seems so vulnerable and so hard to reclaim uh, what we think. That's what I want to talk about, our future. And right there is after. hope. And we just heard there is hope. That's a good thing. I could sleep tonight. We're going to be right <laughs> back with Bob Wiener. Tomorrow he's going to be speaking Thursday, October 6th at 2.30 at Herder Hall in room 601 at our beloved State University. We'll be right back. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. From Senators. There has been a crucial development in the lawsuit involving sexual misconduct claims against the Archdiocese of Springfield and the diocese's attempts to get its hands on the investigative reporter's notes. Join us when we speak to that reporter, former Daily Hampshire Gazette editor Larry Parnas, and his lawyer, Jeffrey Pyle. They will be our guests Thursday at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Hey everyone, Gordon Oliver here. I am privileged, along with my co-pilot Tina Marie, to gather and share a community of people, organizations, and experts who are making a difference in improving and positively impacting the financial lives of others. Financial peace of mind is a marathon, not a sprint, so we're cutting through the clutter to help you attain or continue to attain financial freedom. Wondering about members-only buying services? Tune in on Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP and learn about buyersedgeinc.com. Skates cutting the ice and sticks pounding boards. The slap of the puck and a peel off the post. The chirp of the whistle and the blaring of the horn. Hockey is here. Tune in for all the sounds of the season right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1015, 1400, and 1240 WHMP. Subaru owners who have noticed their batteries run down faster than normal may be entitled to compensation. The automaker has agreed to a settlement of a class action lawsuit according to Top Class Actions, a publication that covers legal matters. Only certain Subaru models are affected. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has published new guidance on infant formula production that will replenish supplies and make future shortages less likely. The agency will allow imports of more baby formula that's produced overseas. Is your smartphone spying on you? Cybersecurity experts warn there has been a surge in mobile phone malware since last year. They say the number one sign that your phone is infected is if it runs slowly. That could be because unknown apps are running in the background. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And I am here with Bob Wiener, who is, uh, has such a rich history, Watergate, White House staffer, knows Congress, knows Nancy Pelosi. And my question, Bob, is, look, this country, there's always been, uh, what, a fractious um, you know, uh, uh, concern that people aren't going to be able to, um, divisiveness. I guess that's the word that I was looking for, divisiveness. H how is our democracy going to heal 
after these insults that you were just describing before the break, what's our future like? Well, the, the best thing going is the Electoral Count Act. Uh, and that looks like it's going to pass, even though uh, Trump starts talking about uh, how uh, McConnell has a death wish because he endorsed stuff like that. Anybody else, anybody else who said that the leader of the Senate has a death wish after the kind of violence that Trump helped foment on January 6th, the Secret Service would have been at his door saying, what kind of language are you using and do you mean it literally and what's going on here? They would be asking that. And that's what they do when people talk like that. Yeah. They did not do that and they have not done that with him. But at any rate, there is hope. Uh, well, don't pass on that. Why is he? Why does he have such a Teflon skin? He he doesn't. People are afraid that that. Uh, first of all, he got away with stuff because he was the president, and there was an internal memo that Pelosi said doesn't hold any water and doesn't have any power that said you can't prosecute or indict a former a current president. It's just a policy that they had, right? right? But. Let's, let's, let's give the hope, because I know you're limited on time. The Electoral Count Act, which is bipartisan with both uh, uh, Klobuchar and Blunt in the, in the Senate, that would take away the power of what Pence was, was being tr – Trump was trying to force Pence to do and not recognize the real electors but recognize fake electors. That could not happen. State by state, the states would have to uh, recognize the real electors, and there's a real threat in the court now, so we need this for that too. Uh, about uh, giving state legislatures, partisan legislatures, the power to override the voters. So that kind of thing could be protected by the Electoral Count Act. That's one full piece of it. But the danger is, is the Time Magazine co uh, cover story this week, the uh, October uh, 10th on Time Magazine says, there are 201, 201 elected officials uh, in the states that are for state or federal office that are election deniers. So if you're left with that, and you have even 10% of those that win, that could be a real, real threat and one that's dangerous. But they also talk about the defenders. And the defenders are, are, are kids to older people from 19 to 25 to on up to 65 who are out there fighting against this. And so that's what we have to do. We have to have a huge turnout, one that is so big that it doesn't give any any credibility to say On November 8th you're talking the, about. Right, that the election was, was, was rigged. And we have to have people that are monitoring it. Remember, too, that the courts, although this special counsel lawyer, they judge shopped and found one cannon who was just a, a you know a right-wing trump acolyte but everybody else 64 cases and trump lost all of them except for one they allowed his observers to be at six feet instead of 10 feet that's the one that he everything else they threw out every other single case and said you have no evidence no evidence no evidence no evidence of any cheating that that rigged the election because he had no evidence right so there needs to be that uh, the Voting Rights Act, the John Lewis Act, again, this is going to take two votes in the Senate. If we gained, if we gained two Senate seats, uh, we could break the filibuster, and you could have a national holiday. It's part of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. We could have Supreme Court reform, and people have said that takes the two votes. The, the force-fed 6-3, which should actually be 6-3 the, the progressive's way, but because of McConnell jury-rigging the, the timing on, 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 on both appointing and not appointing, uh, it's 6-3, and, and you've got this horrible thing. Don't forget that even the Heller case on guns, oh, it's the right. No, that was a 5-4 decision. That's all it was. And people forget to read the other part of that phrase, which is informing a militia. So without that, you don't have all these gun rights. And so the, there's and so the magic word in the Second Amendment, regulate. That's right. That's right. So all of this will re require uh, a, a big turnout, a huge amount of organizing, 
and uh, we just can't fall asleep at the switch and, and let them take over. We saved Obamacare, by the way. We saved it by this kind of organizing. It worked. They were going to change it. You know, if it wasn't for McCain thumbs down, we wouldn't have health care for everyone. People keep asking me about, you know, more demonstrations. I love activism. I am so proud of everybody who goes out there and holds their sign in and expresses themselves. But it is November 8th that really can make a difference in this country. That's right. Uh, and earlier, right? Early voting, things are open. It started yeah. already. It started and by the already. way, here in Massachusetts now, you can register on October 29th. Uh, you can register 10 days before the election instead of 20 like it used to be. Mm. And uh, even though I think that you should be able to re- register on election day, but nevertheless, make sure, Bob is telling you, make sure you register to vote. Even here in Massachusetts, you're in a blue state, it makes a difference. Now, there's one other thing, too, if I can put it out there, Buzz. Please do. Which is a judge in Georgia just said that she, he's not going to back up Stacey Abrams' challenge of the voting process because no one has shown him and there has not been one voter who said they were denied the option of voting. And that actually – I've said that privately at the National Press Club to my team because uh, everybody has made a point of going around whatever blocks the Republicans have put – if there's a line, we'll go in it. Uh, if there's uh, uh, early voting that's dropped from three weeks to one week, we'll go in there in that one week. We'll stand there and do what it takes. So do not allow the uh, any kind of procedures that they put up to stop you from doing what it takes to vote. E- get around it regardless. I think that that's right. It, you know, voting is as important as sending your kids to school. It's become more critical. It's always been critical. But right now, it... If you, it's not just a question of who holds the Senate or who holds the House. It's a question of who holds America. The state, secre- the secretaries of state, the city councils, everybody does voting procedures that make an enormous amount of difference. They, they, they have figured out. They're, they're even doing the library so they can ban more books. They're doing the library councils. So uh, it's just you've got to take, take part in every election now. When you were there in Watergate, did you ever foresee this, that is – Book burning the way it is, no. and voting uh, obstructing voting the way that it has happened, and a president who is uh, above the law. Did you ever well, foresee this? Well, we saw that. Well, you saw that with Nixon. <laughs> I mean, that, but he resigned. I, I that's this, right. He this guy refused it. to acknowledge that he's out of the White House. I mean, I used to say that Nixon was the worst ever, and by the way, I disagreed with with Reagan, with Ford, with the two Bushes. But there was a matter of the philosophy. Uh, tax breaks from the rich are going to make the economy strong, which is dead wrong, by the way. Yeah. Uh, there was a Library of Congress study that showed five to one, you get more bang for the buck with jobs for people. And then when I, I lectured at the London School of Economics and I asked everybody in, in, in the audience, just much like I'm doing at UMass, and I'll get, get input, but uh, what do you think is the better philosophy for the economy? Is it, is it, is it deficit reduction and fewer programs uh, or, or is it jobs for people? All the hands went up with jobs for people. Not one hand went up with deficit reduction and, and, and tax breaks for the rich. So that's, you've, you've got to be truth to power, and, uh, and, and that's, that's the, the way we're going to win. So in the two minutes that we have left, Bob, um, you are going to be speaking tomorrow. You're going to be joining Daniel Gordon, a professor of history in Herder Hall in room 601 tomorrow at 2.30 to discuss the history and the future of American democracy what do you hope to, what's the interaction you anticipate with the people who come to hear you? Well, I'd like to see as many people as want to come. I mean, by the way, it's open, it's free, and, and there'll be Q&A and interface. And, and I like answering questions that are challenging questions from people that are on the other side. It doesn't bother me at all. Uh, 
So what I'm hopeful for is great ideas. Are the ones that I laid out here the right ones, for example? Are there others? Uh, are there other ways that uh, we should challenge uh, the question that you raised, Buzz? Uh, how, how can we get to the people? Why? What makes the Trumpies tick? And how can we get to them? And how can we win them over with, with reason and logic? Uh, and, and maybe they do have something to say. You know, I don't disagree that Trump, uh, you've got to be able to say this, that Trump uh, had a point in trying to deal directly with Kim Jong-un. There's nothing wrong with that if it would work. There's nothing wrong with the fact that he was saying that the United States was at a deficit in trade and losing to China and India and countries like that and that we should take steps about that. I remember when he came to the National Press Club, I was saying he had a point on those. But that pales in comparison to his constitutional abuses and narcissism and theft and the illegality and vote rigging and, 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 and thinking that he doesn't have to pay attention to the results of an election. Because if you don't have an election, you have nothing. You have nothing. Well, you can't do any of the rest. If I could just quickly add, the main issue with me is, and it goes back to 2016, is he refused to accept the outcome of the election. I mean, right. how can you have somebody run for something and say, well, I don't know what the election result is, so I refuse to accept it. Right. Until it goes his way, then I accept it. I mean, that to me says you don't believe in the rules of the game that you are involving yourself in. Yeah. It starts right there. Should Hillary and Gore have not been gracious right. and, and fought? No, that's right. ridiculous. They I mean, imagine right Al Gore. Thing. I mean, Al Gore could have very much so. so. I, I wrote an op-ed. He did not have to accept the results of Florida because— Yeah. Uh, and when, the, when they recounted, he actually won by 532 well, votes. Or, all of that. All of that. Yeah. yeah. All right. All of Sorry, that and more. <laughs> Uh, we're just so pleased that he's here back in the valley where his roots are. Right. Bob Weiner. He's going to be speaking tomorrow. Herder Hall, 2.30, Thursday, October 6th. He's going to be talking about the history and the future of American democracy. It's free. Go here. A true American hero, somebody who really knows what he's talking about, Bob Weiner. Thank you so much for joining us. Pat, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. <laughs> a real thank pleasure. You. And Dan, yeah, thank take you care. very much. And to Jess, too. Thank you all very much. Very good. Okay, we'll talk, we'll talk with you tomorrow uh, on the afternoon buzz, 4 o'clock. Be there, be square. Have a great evening. What a great show you run. This is the afternoon buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. and experiences play an important role in our financial decision-making. Every Saturday morning, hear real-life stories and positive solutions to issues we all face Live when it comes to our relationship with money. for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.